Okay, today then we're on Mark chapter 3 and we're looking at verses 20 to 35. Mark 3 and verses 20 to 35. So, today I'd like to talk about uh, the zeal of Jesus Christ and a little about how that zeal uh, was often misrepresented and maligned. We're looking today at a, really a new angle of attack by the religious elite. It's interesting to note that these miracles of Jesus were almost always accepted as genuine. There was no question that the miracles were genuine. And so the normal tactic wasn't to deny the reality of the miracles. So even Jesus' enemies acknowledged that these were genuine. Now today, this new approach was to suggest that Jesus was doing these things in the power of Satan himself. There's also another accusation that implied that Jesus was out of his mind. And so I want to just make three points today. Well, firstly, I want to look at Jesus' uh, reasoned argument to show how that he was of God, not, not, he was not an agent of Satan. Secondly, I want to look at Jesus' zeal and show that it was not madness, but this was also a spirit-fueled work. And thirdly, I would like to just show that as Jesus' family, believers are to expect the same treatment at the hands of this world. Firstly then, we, we, we look... We look at Jesus' argument and, of course, the accusation had been made that, that he was uh, performing these miracles, especially these exorcisms. He was casting demons out by the power of the prince of demons himself. And the word we come across is Beelzebub. And it's, it's one of an, a number of very, very similar sounding words which variously mean uh, the, the, the Lord of the house, the Lord of the flies, the fly god. Uh, the, the Jews even, I believe, changed, slightly altered the spelling of one of these words so that it meant not Lord of the flies but Lord of the dung excrement. So, I think that there are a few words floating around here, and I don't really want to go into that. It's not necessary. And what one commentator said, you know, too much time has been spent down the years trying to get to the bottom of the various shades of meaning with all these different words like Beelzebub and Baal, Zebal, and all these other things. And so it would suffice uh, us to simply assume that this is Satan that is meant. And of course, 
If you've read the passage there, you will, you will see that, in fact, that's, that is how it was in the understood that Satan is meant. So, let's just look phrase by phrase at how Jesus tried to undermine their argument. He begins by saying, well, it doesn't make any sense, does it, for, for Satan to be against Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? It makes no sense. It, it's just not logical. You, you might wonder why Jesus represented these exorcisms as the casting out of Satan. After all, when he cast out demons, we're not to think that every time that he was casting out Satan personally. This is just a figure of speech that, whether you know it or not, you use yourself. Uh, we use this uh, frequently. We, we put one person for the whole. Uh, if there's one group, we often describe that group, that group uh, by the person who leads it. So, for example, we might say Hitler invaded Poland, but we don't believe that he ran down the street with a gun saying he was going to take over the country. He was in some office somewhere, no doubt, coordinating it. His army went. And so it is said that he invaded it because he was the leader. And so Jesus just is using that figure of speech whereby um, Satan is described, uh, is represented, representative of, of all the angels uh, who, who followed him as well, all his agents. Um, uh, as an example, you might, you might think that when the Bible says, beware of Satan, he's prowling around, he's looking for his next victim, so beware. You might think, well, if there's only one Satan and he's, he's got to get around millions of Christians, he's, he's very unlikely to, to find time to, to spend having a go at me. Of course, it means Satan and all his demons as well. They're all prowling around. And so this is what he means, and... And so he starts off by, by pointing out that it just doesn't seem to make sense. And he goes on. He goes on uh, to say that if you consider a kingdom, some empire perhaps, if there is infighting in that kingdom, and if there's no reconciliation, it will lead to the kingdom's downfall. You, you might imagine that there's, a, there's some glorious world empire and its army uh, divides into two under two different leaders and these armies begin this process of infighting and, and they meet from time to time to battle each other and they start, they start killing each other well eventually there's going to be no one left they'll, 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 everyone will be wiped out a kingdom cannot function like that this business of you know, division causing, leading to a destruction. It's quite, it's quite well known amongst us. I mean, we use phrase, we or we hear phrases, don't we? Like, united we stand, divided we fall, or divide and conquer. So it's acknowledged that division leads to a weakness that can be exploited, and can lead to the end of an entire empire. And having looked at these large empires. Jesus then uses an example at the other extreme, right down to, the, to an individual household. And he says that if there's 
trouble in the house and again there's no reconciliation that the family will end up fractured it will just end up fractured and so we, we, do, we do see even in our own city we, there's plenty of uh, dysfunction within families and these, these families might be they might have fathers who are hardly ever there. They might be alcoholics. The mothers might be on drugs and shoplifting. The kids are in trouble with the police. And there's adultery and there's unwanted pregnancies and there's abortions. And there's chaos. And the fact that some of them live under the same roof does not make them a functioning family. And so... Unless there's some healing brought into that situation, that cannot stand, that cannot function as a family. Jesus goes on to say that, well, if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. If he, ri if he rises up against himself, how can Satan fight himself? Doesn't make sense. It, it says here in Galatians in chapter 5, this is in verse 15. This is a warning to Christians. But I wanted to read it. It's applicable. The warning is, is but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. You know, this, this uh, animosity can, can end up destroying people. The church needs to be, uh, the church needs to be uh, seen as a, uh, as a fellowship of, of people who love each other. That's the ideal, isn't it? And it might help if you picture that as uh, maybe two wild animals going for it, going at each other. And they're biting each other and taking chunks out of each other. Well, they're both going to, there's going to be nothing left of them. They'll just, both of them will collapse and die. And so, so, so this is maybe the picture that Jesus wants us to, to consider. And then he goes on with this example of a burglar. Sounds to me like a burglar. He gives an example where he says uh, someone wants to break into someone's house and steal all their stuff. Well, that's okay, but what if there's some strong guy in the house at the time? And the burglar thinks, well, I, I, I'm not waiting. He thinks, I, 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 I can handle this. So he, if he wants to bust in that house and take all the stuff, he needs to subdue the strong guy in the house first. So we might go in and clobber him over the head or something and then he'll tie him up. He'll tie him to a chair. And then he can just take his time and pick what's valuable to him and go and load his car up and, and off he goes. That's the picture. How that relates to what's gone before is that it will show how silly it is to think of Satan Busting into his own house and stealing his own stuff. So Jesus is gradually just adding on this, these arguments to show how 
contrary to even basic common sense, their accusation is. Satan can't bust in and tie himself up. But there is, if you like, something else for us to read from what Jesus said. Something else we're supposed to take from this. I think we're supposed to understand that that breaking into the house, taking over, taking stuff, that is a picture of what Jesus does to Satan. Whereby Satan is the strong man who is bound. If we take all the conversions throughout the whole of history, and if we condense them all and view them as a, a short, you know, three-minute video clip, we might like to show it in this fashion, whereby Jesus, by virtue of his sacrifice of himself and his resurrection, he was, in effect, breaking in to Satan's territory, subduing him and taking from his possessions those whom he would and what are those possessions? They're none, they're none other than the souls of men and women. Because, friends, as you will confess with me, we are born into this world in the household of Satan. We are in his house. We are his possessions. We, he is our father. But Jesus Christ he determined before the world was that he was going to accomplish a great rescue whereby he would subdue Satan and choose from amongst his possessions a certain group of individuals, even his elect people. And he would, he would bring them out with a great deliverance. And before you feel too sorry for the people that he left behind, well, I can tell you that they are happy just where they are. They are very happy, thank you. They want to stay in that household. They don't want deliverance. Have Christians not for thousands of years preached the gospel of deliverance to them? And they say, well, no, we're happy where we are. We're not interested Well, I was reminded, reminded also as I read this of back when we went through Revelation, towards the end of the book of Revelation in uh, the 20th chapter. In fact, I'll, re I'll read these, I'll read these two uh, verses, uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse, uh, the first two verses says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years one of the results from Jesus' ministry on our planet was that Satan was as it were tied up and subdued and he was not killed but at present, I believe, he is, he is bound in that he is limited in what he is permitted to do. What is this accusation? 
This accusation by the Pharisees is is like this. They're saying that the work of the Holy Spirit carried out by Jesus is actually the work of Satan. That's not the Holy Spirit at work. That's Satan at work. This is what these religious elitists are saying. It's called by Jesus blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I should take a moment to uh, explain this word blasphemy because most Christians are accustomed to thinking of blasphemy as something derogatory said about God. And that is true. But that's not its only meaning. That Blasphemy is a much broader uh, concept. Blasphemy is really any abusive language used against another. And it's wrong for the Christian to, to use such language. And uh, if you uh, think back to uh, Jude, you will remember surely in Jude, there's a little phrase in there, a little verse, that talks about Michael the archangel, he was in a dispute with Satan and he, it said that he, he didn't even dare to, to bring any sort of, you know, railing, you know, accusation, no tirade of abuse or anything. He just said the Lord rebuke you. He just said, may the Lord rebuke you, right? So what's the significance of that? Well, the word used in that verse is the same one as we meet today, blasphemy. That is, it means the very archangel of God dared not blaspheme the name of Satan. So that might sound unusual to you, blasphemy against Satan. It might sound a bit strange, but that's the word it used. And it simply means that no created being has the authority or the right to use such abusive tirades against uh, one of these, one of these uh, other creatures of God. It is God who has the authority to, to do that. And so you will see then quite clearly that Jude is making the point that we are not allowed to use abusive language about Satan. So, uh, it was wrong of the Jews to, 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 to start calling Satan names, calling them, you know, the Lord of Dung. It's wrong of these charismatic churches to set up, you know, little dummies supposedly representing Satan and... and go up to the front and take turns and throw things at him and slap him in the face. It's wrong of Christians like one I knew who wrote the word Satan on his shoe so that all day long he would be trampling on the name of Satan. I'm laughing a bit here, but you know, it's wrong. It, it, says, it, it says it's wrong. It says even the archangel himself didn't dare to bring a railing accusation against Satan. So how much worse would it be if... If we did it. But also, if it's wrong to blaspheme Satan, it must be a hundred times worse 
to use abusive language against those who are made in the very image of God or fellow human beings. You know, I have, I have, I have, I have had difficulty with this myself. I, I, uh, like most people, I, I get angry when I see certain things happening. For example, if I see people on the television, on the news, and they're, they're rioting and smashing up people's property and attacking innocent people and setting fires to things and just being generally violent and antisocial and out of control, I, I just, typically I would say, they're just vile, scum, scum of the earth. They need to be jailed, flogged, I don't know, hanged, whatever. I just get angry, you know. And I used to, um, I used to rip into politicians. I used to say, I'll, I won't say which ones, but certain politicians I felt so angry against. I, I would call them, you know, I would call them names when referring to them. And I came to this realization that that was wrong, and that I had no right to, to, to do that. And so, I try to contain myself. So if I see, you know, antisocial elements who are, uh, I don't know, attacking old people in their homes or committing acts of rape or animal abuse or anything, uh, I have to try and restrain myself and realize that for all the wickedness of that sin, they are made in the image of God. God tells me in his word I have no right to rail against them and use abusive language about them uh, does it need saying that if you use abusive language for a fellow Christian that's off the scale isn't it in terms of seriousness so there's another, another thing to bear in mind but what's more serious than all that is blasphemy against God himself that must be infinitely worse and this is what's going on. This is, according to Jesus, this is what is uh, being done by these Pharisees, slagging off the Holy Spirit. Jesus even says, look, you can say what you want about me. You can rip me to shreds behind me back. You can call me names to me face. But I'm warning you that if you commit this certain sin against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. There's no forgiveness and students of the Bible have called this uh, the, the unforgiven, unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin and a lot has been said about it um, I, I will say this which is interesting that it is, it's a little example of where the Holy Spirit is, 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 is in one regard held up or, or rather, abuse of the Holy Spirit is, is held up as more serious than abuse of Jesus himself. So it sort of, it, it puts the focus temporarily on the Holy Spirit and says, there's a sense in which he's more important than, than, than Jesus. Uh, and so offences against him are, are more serious. And, and that, what that does is it just tells us, it just shows that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is divine. He's a person. He's a person who can be uh, blasphemed in the first place. And he's also divine. There is a difficulty that arises when we read this that I, I just cannot pass by. And it is that, 
Okay, well, here's the dilemma. Jesus has made a statement and we believe him and we believe everything he says is true. So we, we use that as our baseline. Jesus says that those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there's fact number one. Fast forward 2,000 years. There's a guy called Paul standing in a pulpit preaching who knows very well that he has blasphemed the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son and the angels and God's people and a hundred other sins on top of that and was forgiven of the lot of them. How can that be? You might reason that, well, perhaps he committed all these sins under the sun except that one. And that's how he got forgiven. Well, that seems a bit of a stretch. Well, I'll tell you what's more of a stretch. Are we trying to suggest that out of the, I don't know, tens of millions of people who've been converted by God throughout history, that there's not one, there's not one person there who didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There must have been one. There must be one who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit and been forgiven. So we're not to think, of course, that Jesus was wrong or he was misleading us. We're to think that our understanding is, needs some work. Some have said that the reason... The reason this sort of doesn't apply to us today, that all sins can be forgiven us today, is that this was a particular one. It was a particular sin that could only be committed by those who witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus. And even with all that evidence in front of them, they ascribed it to Satan. That was just unforgivable. And that was a sin that could only be committed then by those people, nothing to do with us. And I have a lot of sympathy with that view. That is the view that I held f for many years. But like I say, not only have there been other people who've blasphemed the Holy Spirit throughout history and been saved and been forgiven, but let's be honest, are we saying that all the people who were saved in the accounts of the New Testament, the 3,000 at Pentecost, the, all the others... Are we saying there was no scribes, Pharisees amongst those saved people who at one time had blasphemed the Holy Spirit? There probably was. So what is this? We're left with this dilemma. <clears throat> the first thing I would say just to put your minds at rest is that if you have any concern that you may have committed this sin and therefore your salvation is, is, is a mockery, it's not real. It's very clear that that very concern shows a concern for what honours God. And that is a sign, really, of a believer. I mean, <laughs> do you think the world... Do you think the world's concerned each day about whether they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? They're not interested... If you, if, you, if you are bothered by this, it's because you, you want the glory of God. You want God to be honoured. And therefore, you have nothing to worry about. If you want to hold some view on this, the 
the best view is probably um, we don't know what, what exactly it was Jesus was, was, was talking about maybe that's the best thing just say what we don't know the closest the closest idea I, I, I've come across that can perhaps reflect more what, Je- what Jesus was referring to is the idea of apostasy because in the Bible we have we have described for us a picture where someone makes a Christian profession and they go on for a while and they you know, attend church and they sound like Christians and they do some Bible reading and maybe get involved with, I don't know, beach mission or something and they look like they're genuine. And then they, one day they decide to cast it all off. And then deny Jesus Christ and say that they're not Christians anymore, they're going off to do something else. Now, a genuine believer can't walk away from Jesus. You can't, you can't love this man and be in a relationship with him and be waiting for the day when you can see him face to face and, and just thank him every day for this great forgiveness. You can't do all that. And then abandon him. Unless you were not sure in the first place. And so the apostate is someone who, who sustains this, this confession that Jesus is not a saviour. If, even if he existed, he was just some one of many teachers floating around the Middle East at the time. So we're not to, we're not to compare it to Peter's denial of Jesus, which was, which was awful. But it was temporary, it was very short-lived, and it was followed by true repentance. The apostate is someone who turns his back permanently on God. And there comes a point, with certain people, there comes a point when they so harden their hearts, following a profession for Jesus and a departure from them. They so harden their heart that God washes his hands of that person. He says, that's it now. You're not coming back to me anymore. What does that mean? Why is that significant? It means that there's no way back to God. It means that if that person has some regret and thinks, you know what, I think I made a mistake. I think I'll go back to God. And for all that he will try to repent and get back into that relationship with God, he won't be able to. And you may think it's strange that someone who wants to repent, can't repent. But you must remember, friends, that repentance towards God and faith in God is given by God. And if, as a judgment against a person, he withholds that spirit of repentance, they can spend all their lives trying to repent and he will not allow it. He will not allow them to be heard in the courtrooms of heaven ever again and it's a terrifying thought apostasy and so I'm inclined to say that this position of um, having a sin that will never be forgiven is the sin of the apostate man or woman for them there's no there's no Calvary part two for them it's, it's finished for them. And so I think that's what, what, what that's referring to.
I've taken up the bulk, deliberately taken up the bulk of my message on the first point. I do have another couple of points, but they will be quite brief. I said that the second point, I would look at this, this other accusation, well, this, this thing that's implied about Jesus. So, okay, it, he's not doing this in the power of Satan, but maybe he's, you know, lost his mind. Some people thought he's, he's lost his mind. Uh, is, is he mad? A group of friends thought he'd, he, he was out of his mind. It, perhaps they saw him, you know, um, <laughs> being almost crushed on several occasions. Perhaps they saw that, like on this occasion, he, he couldn't even have a sit down and eat. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't eating properly. Likely he wasn't resting as he should have. To be fair, Jesus did say to people, don't broadcast what I'm doing. Don't broadcast all these miracles because I'm going to be have crowds that are not manageable. So what did everyone do? They went around and broadcast it, got on the phones and posted it on social media and they, they, they brought in crowds from 100 miles away. Well, probably what happened is that this concern filtered its way down to Jesus' family and his mother and brothers were trying to make the way over there maybe to, to get him out of that place and take him home and give him a decent meal. <laughs> uh, you know, it's great, isn't it, that, that Mary loved Jesus so much. She really loved him and that's a, that's a, a good and godly thing, isn't it? As any mother, she would be thinking, <laughs> be thinking, have you had a good, decent meal down here in the past seven days? You need to get more rest. She'd be talking like this, wouldn't she? Because she, she loved him. She's a mother. But you know, she's already been, she's already been taught this lesson before. She, she knows who he is. And she's been told specifically on more than one occasion like, for example, when Jesus was just a child of 12 and she, she, she lost him. Too busy talking. And she lost him. And she found him in the temple. And he said, sorry, well, she said to him, um, we've, we've been worried sick. Where have you been? Me and your father, we've been, been sick with worry. And he says, did you not know that I'd be about my father's business? <laughs> now, if, if one of my kids at the age of 12 said something like that, so, so I think, who do you think you are? But you see, she should have known. She should have known. She, she was told. She, she had it revealed by God himself, you know, that, that, uh, that this was the saviour. But mothers don't think, oh, well, this is the saviour of the world doing his father's business. They, they think he needs a good meal down him. <laughs> That's how they think. And so we, we see, don't we, later on, that they're trying to get to him. Well, uh, I, I, so Mary was slightly wrong, I suppose, in that. But, you know, Jesus did take care. He wasn't irresponsible. Sure, he made sacrifices. It's the sacrifices that, that must be made in Christian ministry. I mean, he went without food. He, he didn't get enough rest. He, he, he was almost crushed to death, no doubt, a few times. 
he received abuse. He was maligned and lied about, and so on. Made sacrifices. You might remember last week, though, he said to his disciples, Go and get a, a boat, get a boat ready down at the seashore, so that if this gets really out of hand, it's looking a bit scary now, I'll be able to, to, to escape down there. And he, he didn't need it right then, actually, as it happens, but he used it later on, as we'll see next time and he, uh, it wasn't just to escape the crowds he, he, preached, he preached from the boat so he took full advantage of the crowd being there so he did take care he, he wasn't careless but he had a purpose he had a purpose he was doing the will of God and doing the will of God requires some sacrifices to be made and so he he sacrificed things in the way I described a minute ago sometimes his sometimes his uh, the expression of his of his inward enthusiasm for the work would, would break out into something more uh, something more extreme if you like you might remember the picture of him in the temple when he uh, got angry and he made a whip and he, you know, escorted all these uh, money changes out the temple and he, and he whacked these animals on the backside and chased them out and he's knocking all the tables over. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen all this. It was, uh, must have been quite a, quite a scene. And you know, his disciples remembered something from the Old Testament that it was, it, was, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that of this Messiah that the zeal of the Father's house would consume him and they recall this and they thought yeah this is zeal this is zeal for God this is but Jesus was thought of as, as losing his mind of being mad and he would not be the first, nor would he be the last to be accused of that in God's kingdom. We might think of the Apostle Paul, it's uh, accounting in Acts 26. I, I will read uh, a few verses from Acts 26. I'm starting in, starting in verse uh, 22. Uh, Acts 26 and 22. And... It says, this is Paul speaking now. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Soberness. This, this speech of Paul's was done in a calm and reasoned manner. And he still he was called mad. 
Jesus, the same as Paul, he employed his mental faculties in all that he did. He was not out of his mind. His mind was fully employed in everything. It says here, uh, this is Jesus to his, his followers in Matthew 22 and verse 37. It's a, a famous verse. Jesus says to this, Jesus says to this uh, person, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. It's, it's everything. It's everything about you. It's your, it's your, it's your emotions. It's your, it's your intellect. It's everything. Christianity is a, is a religion like that. It's a religion of reason. Ours is not a religion where we try to empty our mind to allow outside influences to take over. We remain utterly sober. We remain in control of our senses. And we believe all these things as well. And it's not that we accept uh, Christianity. It's not that we follow Christ because it ticks all the boxes for what is uh, reasonable, what accords with reason. That's not exactly how it works. It's more the case that it is reasonable, but we discover more when we've been Christians for a while, and the more we study the scriptures, we find that it accords more and more and more with reason. It's a fully reasonable faith that we have. It's sensible. It's logical. It's reasonable. And um, <clears throat> Jesus, as I say, is fully in control of his mind as he does these things, just like Paul is, and just like we're to be. My final point is about something Jesus said at the end. They were, they were telling them that, they said, you know, your family is outside. And he said, well, who is, who is my family? I'll tell you who my family is. Everyone who obeys God. Everyone who obeys God, that is, those who, those who really those who, who are enabled to obey through being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is them who are Jesus' family. And although Jesus had, if I can say, biological connections to his, his mother and his brothers, still... There were some in his family and in his extended family who would not ever trust in him. And so those family ties would be broken at death. And here Jesus says that I have another family which transcends all earthly families. It is a connection which is higher and stronger than any genetic one on this earth. It's the family of God. And friends, if you're a believer, you are part of that family. You are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Part of his family. So it should be expected that his family would be, be like him. And would expect the same treatment as him. 
you might say that we are out of our minds then. If, if Jesus is out of his mind, then so must we be. If he's mad, then we must be mad as well. Because we, we follow him and we're, we're related to him. It's always been funny to me how the, the world finds Christian zeal very odd. And you don't have to be very um, outwardly zealous for them to think that you are mad. Why it's strange is because the people of this world might be, say, watching television. They might see some, some news item where some guy and his disabled wife who are living in poverty have just won the national lottery and they've won 10 million pounds and you know their lives are going to be transformed and people will be pleased and even if the people on the television even if the guy who won this money is jumping up and down and screaming and crying they will think that's normal behavior that's fine that that extreme behavior is fine and other people in the world go to things like uh, football, um, football matches. And they, they, they will go and if their team scores a goal, they along with thousands of other people, adults, will simultaneously start to jump up and down, shout, scream, cry, uh, hug strangers and I don't know what and that is all acceptable that's all normal a Christian just shows the slightest degree of you know joy or Christian enthusiasm and the thoughts of us mad it's bizarre is it not not only do they think you're mad for believing in God and wanting to actually obey him? And they, they find it very odd that you're not like them. They want you to come back to being their type of mad. Listen to what it says in First Peter chapter 4. Uh, this is verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, and speaking evil of you all the time, speaking evil of you, because they want you to be mad like them. They don't want you to be obsessed with God which is what all true Christians should be. Oh, that's strange. Paul describes uh, preaching in this way. In Corinthians, he says that, that the secular world thinks preaching is stupid. He goes on to say that it's through the stupidity of preaching that God brings his elect in. So he has the last uh, laugh. God uses the so-called foolishness of preaching to save his people. And so Christians go out and preach. They preach in churches and some on the streets and some 
on videos on the internet and people think it's people think it's stupid think about what think about why they thought Jesus was mad why did they think Jesus was mad well he, he had this enthusiasm and he, he, he as I say he made sacrifices did he not and then he refused to conform to the ways of religious tradition they thought he was mad because he had his priorities the right way round for them the wrong way round he, he thought Jesus taught that you know mercy and love were more important than the performance of mere rituals the religious tradition was yeah yeah love love and all that is, is fine yeah yeah we, we do all that love as well but really you need to be very strict on these points here you need to be strict on these and um, keeping these traditions very strictly they had it the wrong way around people in the churches today do the same criticize people for doing something they think is slightly off and treating them in a way that is unloving which is worse So Jesus Christ was thought of as mad because he, he didn't conform. He, he was just, he just upset everyone. And what about us? What, why would people think we're mad? Well, they think that, uh, you know, we don't conform to religious tradition. You might say, well, well we're in a church. Well, about 95% of all the churches in this world are uh, if, if I might be bold and say this, spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. We could go and take a walk now in, in, in increasing circles around this area and stop at each of the churches and we could go in uh, and let's say the next time they have a meeting and listen, let's say, let's say what they preach, let's see what they've got to say. Well, if you're expecting lots of exaltation of Christ, confronting people with their sin, urging people to repent, speaking freely of realities like death and judgment and resurrection, you're going to be disappointed. Most churches preach nothing of the sort. They preach a new age, feel-good uh, religion of respectability which has nothing to do with the scriptures so they don't like us for that we, they think we're odd they think why do they make sacrifices on their time like this they'll say what well, you, you go to a church meeting what two or three times a week you could be doing something else you, want, you give money to the church. If you save that money, in a couple of years, you could buy a brand new car. Why are you making these sacrifices? They think we're odd. They think we're odd. Well, final verse I want to quote today is from 2 Corinthians. And it's chapter 5 and verse 13. Paul says, 
2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says, For whether we be beside ourselves, quote, mad, it is to God, or whether we be sober, that's for your cause. Paul's acknowledging that his behaviour as a Christian is expressed both soberly and with excitement. And really, that is how Christians are. Now, because really believing in the scriptures and really loving Jesus, being expressed is, is going to be particularly thought of as strange and mad and people will think you, are, you have mental illness, that you've been taken up by some, some kind of hysteria. Because of this, many Christians will try to avoid giving that impression. They may say that it's for the sake of the gospel. Well, uh, there are people in the church who will realise that there is, there is a sort of a level of Christian activity which is acceptable in the eyes of the world. And they realise that as long as we don't go beyond that line, we can have the best of both worlds. We can be devoted to God, but still be friends with everyone. And I see that a lot. Now, we're not to go out of our way to lose friends. Of course not. But I would say to the I would say to you, if you are if you were ever inclined to refrain from Christian activity because you may think that it people will think ill of you. You are treading on very thin ice, friends. You, you need to be very, very concerned. Because it just may be that your behaviour will result in Jesus not speaking up for you. Can you imagine if Jesus now stopped representing you in the throne room of God? Imagine if you, all your prayers were refused by God. Imagine if he stopped listening to you. Imagine at the judgment, Jesus Christ refusing to be your representative, your barrister. Imagine him remaining seated and saying, well, in your life you were ashamed of me. And now I am ashamed of you. Does not bear thinking about. I'm not suggesting that people can lose their salvation. I'm suggesting that if people want to live a life that is so respectable that they think they can keep one foot in the kingdom of God and one in the world, they are mistaken and they are showing the signs of an unbeliever. And the risk that I've just described is there. And so I would say, friends, that you should really dig deep now. Dig deep and find courage. And think more about what Jesus thinks than what the world thinks. I would just really conclude with this. We, we, it's obvious then from what uh, we're saying that there is a balance that needs to be struck 
on the one hand, we don't want to uh, we don't want to copy the the excesses of the charismatic movement in their, their wild behaviour. On the other extreme, we want to avoid a religion that is devoid of the Holy Spirit. So there is a balance to be struck. If I could describe to you what the balance is, it is this. You go about those things like attending meetings and studying the scriptures together and praying with other believers and visiting the the brethren. And we, we do all those things. But a major component in the life of the Christian is that they bear testimony for Jesus Christ, that they tell others about Jesus. And you cannot tell others about Jesus unless you mention things like sin, judgment, Satan, and all those other things that people will cause people to think you are losing your mind. And so you need to make a decision. Who do you care about most? I would encourage you. I would encourage you to really, as, 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 as much as it lies within you, Find ways to bear witness for Jesus Christ. After all, we are part of his family. And when all this is gone, all that will remain is that family. All those friends whose opinions you thought so much of will be gone. We'll be left with a new world and with a new family to live with forever. Uh, What a blessed hope that is. So I would encourage you, friends, to to be bold and not be worried about uh, your zeal being thought of as a temporary madness because none other other than Jesus himself uh, suffered the same uh, allegation. Um, we, We thank him, we thank God for that boldness that he had. The Lord bless you. Amen.